As Bernard and Helmholtz entered, there came from the bathroom an unpleasant and characteristic sound. Then the bathroom door opened, and very pale, the savage emerged. I say, said Helmholtz, you do look ill, John. Did you eat something that didn't agree with you? asked Bernard. The savage nodded. I ate civilization. It poisoned me. I was defiled. I drank some mustard and warm water. Do you mean to say, said Bernard, you were doing it on purpose? That's how the Indians always purify themselves. John sat down. Now I'll rest for a few minutes. I'm rather tired. Well, said Helmholtz, we've come to say goodbye. We're off tomorrow morning. I went to see the controller this morning to ask if I might go to the islands with you. And what did he say? He wouldn't let me. He said he wanted to go on with the experiment, but I'm damned if I'll go on being experimented with. I'll go away tomorrow too. But where? they asked in unison. The savage shrugged. I don't care, so long as I can be alone. The savage chose as his hermitage the old lighthouse which stood on the crest of the hill between Putnam and Elstead. The building was of ferro-concrete and in excellent condition, almost too comfortable, the savage had thought, when he first explored the place. His first night in the hermitage was therefore deliberately a sleepless one. He spent the hours on his knees praying. When morning came, he felt he'd earned the right to inhabit the lighthouse. The view on all sides was spectacular, the near as seductive as the far. The woods, the open stretches of heather and yellow gorse, the clumps of scotch firs, the shining ponds with their overhanging birch trees. These were beautiful, and, to an eye accustomed to the aridities of the American desert, astonishing. And then, the solitude. Of the money which, on his first arrival, John had received for his personal expenses, most had been spent on his equipment. Before leaving London, he'd bought blankets, rope and string, nails, glue, tools, matches, pots and pans, seeds. He counted his money. The little that remained would be enough to tide him over the winter. By next spring, his garden would be producing enough to make him independent of the outside world. Meanwhile, there'd always be game. He set to work to make a bow and arrows. The work gave him intense pleasure. He'd almost finished whittling the stave into shape when he realised with a start that he was singing. Guiltily, he blushed. After all, it wasn't to sing and enjoy himself that he'd come here. It was to escape further contamination by the filth of civilised life. It was to be purified and made good. It was actively to make amends. Half an hour later, three Delta Minus land workers happened to be driving to Elstead, and at the top of the hill were astonished to see a young man standing outside the abandoned lighthouse, stripped to the waist and hitting himself with a whip of knotted cords. The driver of the lorry pulled up at the side of the road and with his two companions stared open-mouthed at the extraordinary spectacle. Three days later, like turkey buzzards settling on a corpse, 
the reporters came. The savage was busy on his arrows. Thirty hazel sticks had been whittled and dried, tipped with sharp nails, carefully knocked. It was at work upon the feathering of his shafts that the first of the reporters found him. Noiseless on his pneumatic shoes, the man came up behind him. Good morning, Mr. Savage. I represent the hourly radio. What do you want? Just a few words from you, Mr. Savage. He thrust forward a microphone. Mr. Savage, why did you come here? And of course, we're all crazy to know about that whip. How did they know about the whip? Just a few words, a very few. Five words, he uttered. Though, as they were in the Red Indian dialect of New Mexico, it's doubtful if anyone understood them. Then, seizing the reporter by the shoulder, he spun him round, aimed, and delivered a most prodigious kick. Eight minutes later, a new edition of the hourly radio was on sale in the streets of London. Hourly reporter has coxix kicked by mystery savage. Ran the headline. Sensation in Surrey. Undeterred by that cautionary bruise on their colleague's coxix, four other reporters called that afternoon, and met with receptions of increasing violence. After that, the savage was left for a time in peace. The weather was breathlessly hot. There was thunder in the air. He dug all the morning, and was resting, stretched out along the floor. And suddenly, the thought of Lenina. Was a real presence, naked and tangible, saying, "Sweet," and, "Put your arms round me." Impudent strumpet! But oh, her arms round his neck, the lifting of her breasts, her mouth. No, no, no! He sprang to his feet and, half naked as he was, ran out of the house. At the edge of the heath stood a clump of hoary juniper bushes. He flung himself against them. He embraced the green spikes. The whip was hanging on a nail by the door. In a frenzy, the savage ran back to the house, seized it, whirled it. The knotted cords bit into his flesh. Strumpet, strumpet! He shouted at every blow, as though to a Lenina, warm, scented, infamous Lenina. And then, oh, Linda. Forgive me, God. I'm bad. I'm wicked. From his carefully constructed hide in the wood, three hundred meters away, Darwin Bonaparte, the Feely Corporation's most expert big game photographer, had watched the whole proceedings. He'd spent three days sitting inside the bowl of an artificial oak tree. Three nights crawling on his belly through the heather, but now, the great moment had come. He kept his telescopic cameras carefully aimed on the frantic and distorted face, listening in meanwhile to the blows, the groans, the wild and raving words that were being recorded on the soundtrack. When they put in the feely effects at the studio, it would be a wonderful film. Twelve days later, the Savage of Surrey had been released and could be seen, heard, and felt in every first-class Feely Palace in Western Europe. 
The effect of Darwin Bonaparte's film was immediate. On the afternoon following its release, John's rustic solitude was suddenly broken by the arrival overhead of a great swarm of helicopters. He was digging, and suddenly he was in shadow. Like locusts they came, hung, poised, descended all around him on the heather. And from out of the bellies of these giant grasshoppers stepped men in white flannels and women, for the weather was hot, in shorts and singlets, one couple from each. In a few minutes there were dozens standing in a wide circle round the lighthouse, staring, laughing, clicking their cameras, throwing, as to an ape, packets of sex hormone chewing gum. And every moment, for across the hog's back the stream of traffic now flowed unceasingly, their numbers increased. The savage, in the posture of an animal at bay, stood with his back to the wall, staring from face to face. From this stupor he was aroused by the impact on his cheek of a well-aimed packet of chewing gum. Go away! The ape has spoken. There was a burst of laughter and clapping, and through the babble he heard cries of, The whip! The whip! Acting on the word suggestion, he seized the bunch of knotted cords from its nail behind the door and shook it at his tormentors. There was a yell of ironical applause. We want the whip! We want the whip! At about the twenty-fifth repetition, the proceedings were startlingly interrupted. Yet another helicopter had arrived from across the hog's back. The door opened, and out stepped first a ruddy-faced young man, then, in green velveteen shorts, white shirt and jockey cap, a young woman. At the sight of Lenina, the savage started, recoiled, turned pale. She stood, smiling at him, an uncertain, imploring smile. Then suddenly two tears rolled down her cheeks. She said something. Then, with a quick, impassioned gesture, she stretched out her arms towards the savage and stepped forward. We want the whip. We want... And all of a sudden, they had what they wanted. Strumpet! The savage rushed at her like a madman. Fry, lechery, fry! Hungrily the crowd gathered round, pushing and scrambling like swine about the trough. Oh, the flesh! This time it was on his shoulders that the whip descended. Kill it! Kill it! Drawn by the fascination of pain and impelled by that desire for unanimity which their conditioning had so implanted in them, the crowd began to mime the frenzy of his gestures. Then suddenly somebody started singing, Orgy Porgy. In a moment they'd all caught up the refrain, and singing had begun to dance. Orgy Porgy, round and round, beating one another in six-eight time. It was after midnight when the last of the helicopters took its flight. Stupefied by Soma, and exhausted by a long-drawn frenzy of sensuality, the savage 
lay sleeping in the heather. The sun was already high when he awoke. He lay for a moment, blinking in owlish incomprehension at the light, then suddenly remembered everything. Oh, my God! My God! He covered his eyes with his hand. That evening, the swarm of helicopters that came buzzing across the hog's back was a dark cloud ten kilometers long. The description of last night's orgy of atonement had been in all the papers. Savage, called the first arrivals as they alighted from their machine. Mr. Savage! They pushed open the door of the lighthouse and walked into a shuttered twilight. On the further side of the room, just under the crown of the archway, dangled a pair of feet. Very slowly, like two unhurried compass needles, the feet turned towards the right, southeast, south, southwest. Then, after a few seconds, turned as unhurriedly back towards the left, south, southwest, south, southeast.